Section five of A Life's Morning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. A Life's Morning by George Gissing. Section five. Chapter three, part two. Emily quietly sought a chair near Mrs. Russell, from whom she received a kind look. Mr. Athel was relating a story of his early wanderings in Egypt, with a leisurely gusto, an effective minuteness of picturing, the result of frequent repetition. At the points of significance he would pause for a moment or two and puff life into his cigar. His anecdotes were seldom remarkable, but they derived interest from the enjoyment with which he told them. They impressed one with a sense of mental satisfaction, of physical robustness held in reserve of life content among the good things of the world shall we have lights mrs rossall asked when the story at length came to an end play something first said beatrice this end of twilight is so pleasant mrs rossall went to the piano upon which still fell a glimmer from another window and filled the room with harmony suiting the hour wilfrid had come in and seated himself on a couch in a dark corner his father paced up and down the grass. Emily watched the first faint gleam of stars in the upper air. Then lamps and candles were brought in. Beatrice was seen to be dressed in dark blue, her hair richly attired, a jewelled cross below her throat, her bosom and arms radiant in bare loveliness. Emily, at the moment that she regarded her, found herself also observed. Her own dress was of warm grey, perfectly simple, with a little lace at the neck and wrists. Beatrice averted her eyes quickly and made some laughing remark to Mr. Athel. "'I know you always object to sing without some musical preparation,' said Mrs. Russell, as she took a seat by the girl's side. "'I wonder whether we ought to close the windows. Are you afraid of the air?' "'Oh, leave them open,' Beatrice replied. "'It is so close.' Her cheeks had a higher colour than usual. She lay back in the chair with face turned upwards, her eyes dreaming. "'You are tired, I am afraid,' Mrs. Rossall said, "'in spite of your sleep in the hammock. "'The first day in the country always tires me dreadfully.' "'Yes, I suppose I am a little,' murmured Beatrice. "'Not too tired, I hope, to sing,' said Wilfrid, "'coming from his couch in the corner to a nearer seat. "'His way of speaking was not wholly natural. "'Like his attitude, it had something constrained. "'He seemed to be discharging a duty.' "'Observe the selfishness of youth,' remarked Mr. Athel. "'Age, I dare say, has its selfishness too in the present instance,' was Mrs. Rossell's rejoinder. "'To whom does that refer?' questioned her brother jocosely. Beatrice turned her head suddenly towards Emily. "'Shall I sing, Miss Hood?' she asked, with a touch of her ingenue manner, though the playfulness of her words rang strangely. "'It will give me much pleasure to hear you,' was the sober reply, coming after an instant of embarrassment. Beatrice rose. Her movement across the room had a union of conscious stateliness and virgin grace, which became her style of beauty. It was in itself the introduction to fine music. Mrs. Rossell went to accompany. Choice was made of a solo from an oratorio. Beatrice never sang trivialities of the day, a noteworthy variance from her habits in other things. In a little while, Wilfrid stirred to enable himself to see Emily's face. It showed deep feeling. 
and indeed it was impossible to hear that voice and remain unmoved. Its sweetness, its force, its skill were alike admirable. Beatrice conversing was quite other than Beatrice when she sang. Music was her mode of self-utterance. From the first sustained note it was felt that a difficulty of expression had been overcome, and that she was saying things which at other times she could not, disclosing motives which as a rule the complexities of her character covered and concealed which were not clear to her own consciousness till the divine impulse gave them form. It was no shallow nature that could pour forth this flood of harmony. The mere gift of a splendid voice, wrought to whatever degree of perfection, would not invest in this rare power. In technical qualities she might have much still to learn, but the passionate poetry of her notes was what no training could have developed, and it would never evince itself with more impressiveness than tonight. It seemed frivolous to speak thanks. Wilfrid gazed out into the dark of the garden. Emily kept her eyes bent downward. She heard the rustle of Beatrice's dress near her. Mr. Athel began to speak of the piece. The sound of Beatrice's voice replying caused Emily at length to look up, and she met the dark eyes, still large with the joy of the song. Her own gaze had a beautiful solemnity a devout admiration, of which it was impossible to doubt the genuineness. Beatrice, observing it, smiled very slightly before turning away again. A quarter of an hour after, Emily withdrew. Mrs. Russell played a little, and talk of an idle kind followed. Wilfrid was not disposed to take his usual part in conversation, and his casual remarks were scarcely ever addressed to Beatrice. Presently, Mrs. Russell wished to refer to the spectator, which contained a criticism of a new pianist, of whom there was much talk just then. "'Have you had it, Wilf?' Mr. Athel asked, after turning over a heap of papers in vain. "'Oh, the spectator,' Wilfrid replied, rousing himself from absentness. "'Yes, I had it in the summer-house just before dinner. I believe I left it there. Shall I fetch it?' "'It would serve you right if I said yes,' admonished Mrs. Russell. "'In the first place you had no business to be reading it.' "'I will go,' Wilfrid said rising with an effort. No, no, it will do to-morrow. May as well get it now, he said indifferently, and went out by the window. That part of the garden through which he walked lay in the shadow of the house. The sky was full of moonlight, but the moon itself was still low. A pathway between laurels led to the summer-house. Just short of the little building he passed the edge of shade, and, before entering, turned to view the bright crescent as it hung just above the house-roof. Gazing at the forms of silvered clouds floating on blue depths, he heard a movement immediately behind him. He turned to behold Emily standing in the doorway. The moon's rays shone full upon her. A light shawl which seemed to have covered her head had slipped down to her shoulders, and one end was held in a hand passed over her breast. There was something in the attitude which strikingly became her. Her slight figure looked both graceful and dignified. The marble hue of her face thus gleamed upon, added to the statuesque effect. Her eyes had a startled look. Their lids drooped as Wilfrid regarded her. "'You have been sitting here since you left us?' he asked, in a voice attuned to the night's hush. "'I was tempted to come out. The night is so beautiful.' "'It is.' He uttered the assent mechanically. His eyes, like hers, had fallen, but he raised them again to her face." It seemed to him in this moment the perfect type of spiritual beauty, the brows so broad and pure, the eyes far-seeing in their maidenly reserve, 
the lips full firm of infinite refinement and sweetness he felt abashed before her as he had never done they had stood thus but a moment or two yet it seemed long to both emily stepped from the wooden threshold onto the grass somebody wants the spectator he said hurriedly i believe i left it here yes it is on the table with a perfectly natural impulse she quickly re-entered the house to reach the paper she had seen only a minute ago without reflection heartbeats stifling his thought he stepped after her the shadow made her turn rapidly a shimmer of silver light through the latticework still touched her features her lips were parted as if in fear emily he did not know that he had spoken the name upon his tongue a name he had said low to himself often to-day and yesterday was born of the throe which made fire currents of his veins the passion which at the instant seized imperiously upon his being she could not see his face and hers to him was a half-veiled glory yet each knew the wild gaze the all but terror in the other's eyes that anguish which indicates a supreme moment in life a turning point of fate she had no voice wilfrid's words at length made way impetuously i thought i could wait longer and try in the meanwhile to win your kind thoughts for me but i dare not part from you for so long leaving it a mere chance that you will come back i must say to you what it means the hope of seeing you again all the other desires of my life are lost in that you are my true self for which i shall seek in vain whilst i am away from you can you give me anything a promise of kind thought a hope to live upon till i see you i cannot come back but for the intense stillness he could not have caught the words they were sighed rather than spoken because i have said this emily he saw the white shape of her hand resting upon the table and held it in his own that exquisite hand which he had so often longed to touch how cold it was yet how soft living she made no effort to draw it away i cannot say now what i wish to he spoke hurriedly i must see you to-morrow you will not refuse i must see you you are often out very early i shall be at the hollow where we talked yesterday early at seven o'clock you will come if the morning is not fine then the day after emily you will meet me i will meet you he touched her fingers with his lips took the paper and hastened back to the house his absence had not seemed long it was only five minutes reaching the open windows he did not enter at once but stood there and called to those within to come and admire the night he felt his face hot and flushed what is there remarkable about the night asked mr athel sauntering forwards come and look at this glorious moon miss redwing wilfrid exclaimed once more with the natural friendliness of his habitual tone to her it seems to have put you in excellent spirits remarked mrs rossall as followed by beatrice she approached the window have you found the spectator that's the point wilfrid continued speaking in a raised voice for it was just possible he thought that emily might come this way round to enter and he wished her to be apprised of their presence all went back into the room after a few moments and as the air had grown cooler the windows were closed as wilfrid seated himself in a dusky part of the room he noticed that beatrice was regarding him steadily she had not spoken since his return and did not do so till she presently rose to say good-night to wilfrid she used no form of words 
merely giving him her hand. That other had been so cold. How hot this was. She laughed as she turned from him. "'What is the source of amusement?' inquired Mr. Athel, who was standing by with his hands upon his hips. "'Indeed, I don't know,' returned Beatrice, laughing again slightly. "'I sometimes laugh without cause.' Emily had passed upstairs and gone to her bedroom but a moment before, treading with quick, soundless steps. When Wilfrid left her in the summer-house, she stood unmoving, and only after a minute or two changed her attitude by putting her palms against her face, as if in the gloom she found too much light. It was a sensation of shame which came upon her, a tremor of maidenhood in reliving, swift instant by instant, all that had just passed. Had she in any way aided in bringing about that confession? Had she done anything, made a motion, uttered a tone, which broke away the barrier between herself and him? When she could recover her self-consciousness, disembarrass herself of the phantom moments which would not fleet with the rest of time, it was scarcely joy which she read in her heart. Apprehension, dismay, lack of courage to look forward beyond this night, these oppressed her. Then, close upon the haunting reality of his voice, his touch, came inability to believe what had happened. Had a transient, dreamful slumber crept upon her as she sat here alone, so quickly had the world suffered recreation, so magical the whelming of old days in a new order, so complete the change in herself. One word she knew which she had power from eternity to do these things, and that word neither he nor she had uttered. But there was no need, when the night spoke it in every beat of time. Fearful of being seen, she at length ventured to return to the house. Moonlight streamed full upon her bed. It would have irked her as yet to take off her clothes. She lay in the radiance which seemed to touch her with warm influences, and let her eyes rest upon the source of light. Then at length joy came, enthroned in her heart, joy that would mate with no anxious thought, no tremulous brooding. This was her night. There might be other happy beings in the world, to whom it was also the beginning of new life, but in her name was its consecration, hers the supremacy of blessedness. Let the morrow wait on the hour of waking, if indeed sleep would ever come. This moment, this sacred now, was all that she could comprehend. She undressed at length, and even slept fitfully, always to start into wakefulness with the sense of something to be thought upon, to be realised, to be done. The weariness of excitement perturbed her joy. The meeting which was to take place in a few hours became a nervous preoccupation. The moonlight had died away. The cold light of dawn began to make objects in the room distinct. Was it good to have consented so readily to meet him? Nay, but no choice had been left her. His eagerness would take no refusal, and it was impossible for things to remain as they were, without calmer talk between them. It was her resource to remember his energetic will, his force of character. The happiness of passively submitting to what he might dictate, sure of his scrupulous honour, his high ideal. Could she indeed have borne to go into exile from his presence, without a hope that this the noblest and most aspiring life that had ever approached her might be something more than a star to worship? If wealth comes, we wonder how we drew breath in poverty. Yet we lived, and should have lived on. Let the gods be thanked, whom it pleases to clothe the soul with joy which is superfluous to bear existence. Might she not now hallow herself to be a true priestess of beauty? 
Would not life be vivid with new powers and possibilities? Even as that heaven was robing itself in glory of sunrise, with warmth and hue which strengthened her again to overcome anxieties. Was he waking? Was he impatient for the hour of his meeting with her? She would stand face to face with him in the full sunlight this time, but with what deep humility! Should she be able to find words? She had scarcely spoken to him ever as yet, and now there was more to say than hours of solitude would leave time for. She knew not whether to bid the sun linger or speed. There was nothing unusual in her rising and going forth early, though perhaps she had never issued from the house quite so early as this morning. It was not yet six o'clock when she gently closed the garden gate behind her, and walked along the road which led to the common. The sun had already warmed the world, and the sheen of earth and heaven was at its brightest. The wind sweeping from the downs was like the breath of creation, giving life to forms of faultless beauty. Emily's heart lacked no morning hymn. Every sense reveled in that pure joy which is the poetry of praise. She wished it to be near the hour of meeting, yet again was glad to have time to prepare herself. Walking, she drank in the loveliness about her, marked the forms of trees, the light and shade of heavy leafage, the blendings of colour by the roadside, the grace of remote distances. All these things she was making part of herself, that in memory they might be a joy for ever. It was the art of life to take each moment of mental joy, of spiritual openness, as though it would never be repeated, to cling to it as a pearl of great price, to exhaust its possibilities of sensation. At best such moments will be few amid the fateful succession of common cares, of lassitudes, of disillusions. Emily had gone deep enough in thought already to understand this. In her rapture there was no want of discerning consciousness. If this morning were to be unique in her life, she would have gained from it all that it had to give. Those subtle fears, spiritual misgivings, which lurked behind her perceptions would again have their day, for it was only by striving that she had attained her present modes of thought. Her nature concealed a darker strain, an instinct of asceticism, which had now and again predominated, especially in the period of her transition to womanhood, when the material conditions of her life were sad and of little hope. It was no spirit of unreflective joy that now dwelt within her, but the more human happiness extorted from powers which only yield to striving. Hitherto her life's morning had been but cold and grey. She had trained herself to expect no breaking forth of gleams from the sober sky. This sudden splendour might be transitory. But who was that already standing by the hollow? Was it likely that he would be later than she at the place of meeting? Emily stood with a shock of life at the gates of her heart. She tried to keep her eyes raised to his as she approached slowly, he with more speed. Would she not, after all, find voice for the thing she had to say? Wilfrid came to her with bare head, and took her hand, no more than took her hand, for he was in awe of the solemn beauty of her countenance. "'You thought I should keep you waiting?' he asked, in a low voice, trembling with joy. "'I have watched the sunrise.' "'The door had not been opened.' "'My window is not high above the ground,' he answered, with an uncertain laugh. They walked side by side over the heather, towards the beginning of a wood, young fir-trees mingling with gorse and bracken. Beyond was the dense foliage of older growths. He had again taken one of her hands, and so led her on. Emily! She was able to look into his face for a moment, 
but the moving of her lips gave no sound i could not sleep he went on so i read of you till dawn in the night's tale it is a name i have always loved sweet musical but of deep meaning will you not let me hear you speak emily she uttered a few timid words then passed on in silence till the wood was about them may i tell you the plan which i have made in the night he said as they stood on a spot of smooth turf netted with sunlight you leave us in two days before we start for london i shall speak with my father and tell him what has come about you remember what i was saying about him the day before yesterday perhaps it was with a half thought of this so daring i was you see i have no fear of his kindness his good sense at the same time it is right you should know that my independence is assured my grandfather left me far more than enough for mere needs by the summer of next year i shall be free of oxford i care little now for such honours as those you have honoured me more than any other voice has power to do but my father would be disappointed if i did not go on to the end and do something of what is expected now you must tell me freely is there absolute necessity for your maintaining yourself in the meanwhile for your leaving home there is she replied then you will continue to teach the children as usual she was touched with apprehension gladly i would do so but is it possible would you conceal from mrs rossell wilfrid mused i meant to but your instincts are truer than mine say what you think i believe my father would countenance for it involves no real deceit if you wish it emily said after a silence in a low voice of my aunt pursued wilfrid i have just this degree of doubt she might make difficulties her ways of thinking differ from ours yet it is far better that you should continue to live with us i myself shall scarcely ever be at home it will not be as if i dwelt under the roof i will make my visits as short as possible not to trouble you i could not let you go to the house of other people you to lack consideration perhaps to meet unkindness rather than that you shall stay in your own home or i will not return to oxford at all emily stood in anxious thought he drew a step nearer to her seemed about to draw nearer still but checked himself as she looked up i fear we must not do that she said mrs rossell would not forgive me woman's judgment of woman and worth much more than wilfrid's rough and ready scheming wilfrid smiled then she also shall know he exclaimed she shall take nay view of this i will not be gainsaid what is there in the plan that common sense can object to your position is not that of a servant you are from the very first our friend you honour us by the aid you give efficient as few could make it yes there shall be no concealment far better so you have no fear of the views they will take none he said with characteristic decision if they are unreasonable absurd our course is plain enough you will be my wife when i ask you to emily she faltered and held her hand to him is it worth while to go back to oxford he mused caressing the fingers he had kissed oh yes you must emily urged with a sort of fear in her sudden courage you must not disappoint them your father your friends my fair wise one he murmured gazing rapturously at her oh emily think what our life will be shall we not drain the world of its wisdom youth of its delight hand in hand one heart one brain what shall escape us it was you i needed to give completeness to my thought and desire the old dream the eternal fancy this one 
this and no other chosen from out the myriads of human souls individuality the servant of passion mysteries read undoubtingly with the eye of longing bead perhaps so truly who knows she came nearer imperceptibly her raised face aglow like the morning wilfrid you believe you know that i love you the last words breathed out in the touching of lips with lips what could he reply save those old simple words of tenderness that small vocabulary of love common to child and man the goddess that made herself woman for his sake see he did not hold her clasped to him but she was mute again the birds sang so loudly round about them uttered their hearts so easily but emily could only speak through silence and afterwards she knew there was so much she should have said what matter one cannot find tongue upon the threshold of the holy of holies end of section five chapter three part two